0: So happy to be with you all again. Um, I was here July the 10th, two weeks ago, and um, we started a series called Rebuilding Face. Tonight we're going to continue that about things to unlearn and to relearn, durable truths that can replace the shallow truths that we've struggled with that have not been strong enough to get us through a simple life of faith. So maybe your faith looks like the standard knitting mill a few months ago. Did anybody see that? Yeah, Um, on fire blowing up. Maybe you're in need of rescue. You are so welcome here. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, Next slide. We began a series uh, and used this. So take a moment, just check it out because if you weren't here, you may think, okay, that's a lot of information. What we did was we concluded that all of this belongs in the walk of faith. So at the beginning, the Torah and the history books of the Bible tell us who we are. We're loved. We're chosen. We have rules. We have community. And then we get into the next part, the prophets. It's more about being able to step away and look and say, oh, dang, this just isn't working the way I thought it would. There's a shadow side in me, there's harm in systems as well as people, and I'm seeing things fail, and I have to work on forgiveness, and I don't even want to do that. And then the, the big red wall, um, the fear, the frustration, the disappointment and disillusionment, the lostness, and the questions, and the wrestling of slamming up against the walls of life that flatten us. Well, all of that is part of being a Christian. And ultimately, if we work through the wall, we get to the point of wisdom literature where we see that Christ is the wisdom of God and we live him out. We looked at Jacob's dark night of the soul. It was in Genesis 32. And we found that wrestling with God in times of suffering, when we hit a wall, is a genuine part of devotion to God. Some truths we were taught at the beginning of our faith are maybe lacking a whole perspective. It's not that they were untrue. It's not that they were false. There just needed to be a rounder perspective for us. We need truth that will support a long relationship with our knowable and yet mysterious God. So let's continue to talk tonight about things that we need to unlearn about the Christian faith and the durable truths that will replace them. We have two main scriptures. Um, The first is Job's revelation of God. And then the second is John's revelation of Jesus in Revelation 1. So the thread for this sermon that I want you to listen for is that when God reveals himself in a new way, everything we understand shifts according to that epiphany. Now, what's an epiphany? An epiphany is a moment of sudden revelation or insight. Um, What we know changes because we have new light that floods in, um, new information, fresh understanding. So revelation and discovery of God changes who we are. So listen for that. All right, what about Job? Job was a righteous man in God's eyes. He was set up in a spirit realm duel. We had God on one side and Satan on the other. The question of the duel was this. Would Job deny God even if he catastrophically lost everything? Talk about slamming up against a wall of life. He slammed against a series of walls that were stacked on each other. So what we find is Job remained true and he questioned God. He was faithful and he was so torn up that he couldn't even speak when his friends got there to support him and love him for a whole week. He, was, he believed and he complained and lamented against his horrible circumstances. So you see that in this phase of life, it's not very black and white. It's more gray. It's a both and. So we studied this in Genesis 32. Wrestling is an invitation into intimacy. It's as if suffering comes along and gives us a key to a door to know God better. And we get to choose are we going to use that key or are we going to just run from that door because it's so hard? So we find that it's also a revela- uh, an, sort of an invitation. It's as if God comes to you and says, My son, my daughter, I love you. I've heard your prayers to know me better. And here's an invitation to you. Please reply, please, RSVP. I want you to know me, but I'm going to use suffering to do it. And that's typically an invitation we want to not reply to, weeping, confusion, wrestling, questioning, doubt. What we found is it's all part of the life of faith. It all belongs. Next slide. So Job, in his situation, we're going to start with Job 38 in a series of questions. There are 70 questions God asks Job, but we're going to pinpoint Job 42 so if you are following along in your Bible or on your app you want to go to Job 42 please so at this point what we find in the book is that Job wants to confront God but after time of silence God actually confronts Job and interestingly he didn't answer any of Job's questions he didn't address his frustrations or his protests instead he asks Job 70 questions and it's interesting too because they all relate to Job's love language which was nature at the end of the questions Job articulates his epiphany and this is in the scriptures so Job 42 3 through 6 I'll, I'll get parts of that Job says surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful which means surpassing extraordinary or difficult, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you and now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So before Job's epiphany, his understanding about God was incomplete. It was insufficient to get him through the walls of devastation. And he felt this, you all, in his soul. It poured out in his disillusionment, his dissatisfaction, and his discouragement, and his wrestling with God. There were things Job had to unlearn about God, and then he had a clearer picture of God and himself. Well, another example is John. John as he writes the book of Revelation so if you are following along go to Revelation 1 and we'll start with verse 10 but while you're turning there or scrolling there let me remind you who John is so John called himself the disciple who Jesus loved and was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus he's thought to be the author of the gospel of John the three books of John and then Revelation at the end. In his old age, his writing is poetic and insightful and full of love and symbolic. But in his early ministry, Jesus nicknames him a son of thunder because of his temper. So you can tell what being in Jesus' presence did to him. He was called with his brother, James, and Simon Peter and Andrew, all the guys from his dad's fishing business. He saw Jesus change water to wine in John 2, clear out the temple, talk with a woman at the well, and then he witnessed the Samaritan revival in John 4. He saw Jesus heal a disabled man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. He fed the 5,000. He saw Jesus um, confuse people a little bit by saying his body and his blood needed to be eaten and used as drink. And so he saw people walk away from Jesus when things got confusing. He saw Jesus walk on water. He heard him to be the living water of God in John 7. He witnessed the release of a woman caught in adultery in John 7. And he saw him give sight to a blind man in John 8. Oh, sorry, that was John 9. He heard Jesus say, I am. Now listen to this list. I am going away. I am the bread of life. I am from above. I am the son of man. I am not possessed by a demon. I am not seeking glory for myself. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. John heard Jesus say all of these things. He also heard him say controversial things, I and the Father are one. And then he saw Lazarus walk out of a tomb and into life in John 11. He heard Jesus predict his death and he heard Jesus say he came to save the world in John 12. He smelled that sweet perfume when Mary of Bethany anointed his feet for burial in John 12. And he witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter the Transfiguration, numerous other healings that are listed in other Gospels. He was part of the prep team for the Last Supper. And Jesus washed his feet with cool water and a towel. That's John. So one other thing that we see is at that Last Supper, John reclines up against Jesus, sort of leaning back on Jesus' shoulder like a little brother with a big brother, That's in John 13. It was John who asked Jesus who would betray him. It was John who stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. It was John who became the man responsible for taking care of Jesus' mama. He and Peter ran to that empty tomb and it was John who believed. He ate fish on the beach after Jesus was resurrected and saw Jesus numerous times before his ascension. In Acts 4, John was thrown into prison with Peter. He was called the pillar of the church by Paul and was often referred to as John the Elder in literature of his day. His brother James became the first Christian martyr. John was exiled on a plain, horrible, rock of an island called patmos in his 90s for the word of god and for the testimony of jesus that's revelation 1 9 so we see in his story john peter andrew and james seem to be the best of friends a precious and tightly grouped cell of men with jesus at its nucleus who else knew jesus better than john the disciple who Jesus loved. Now let's get into scripture. Keep all of that in mind. So Revelation 1, verse 10. On the Lord's day, I, meaning John, was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white, white like wool, white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead then he placed his right hand on me and said do not be afraid I'm the first and the last I'm the living one I was dead and now look I'm alive forever and ever And I hold the keys of death in Hades. John, best friend John, learned that Jesus was no longer a chum, a buddy, like he had been. No, No, Jesus was Lord. Jesus was resurrected and endued with power to bring the kingdom to earth. Rather than run to Jesus and give him a massive hug, or rather than go grab a beer and talk about old times, or rather than reminisce and laugh and about all those mishaps and memories. John fell to the ground, you all fell at Jesus' feet as though dead. No longer was Jesus the cute little baby in the manger, or the pulp of a man hanging on the cross, or the risen one showing his side and his hands. He was mighty He was phenomenal. He was majestic and John was on his face. And then Jesus gently touched John and he reintroduced himself. Did you catch that? He reintroduces himself. I am the first and the last, the living one, alive forever and ever. Next slide. Perhaps as you've gone through a shattering wall of sorts, you need a reintroduction to Jesus. You need an epiphany. Perhaps like John and Job, you need an epiphany that that completes a little bit of the incomplete truths that you'd been taught. Well, me too. When I find myself in a massive mess before Jesus. I know that I need him to reintroduce himself to me. I need something new, a new facet, something I can hold on to. When we fall to the ground undone by God in life, we need an encounter, an epiphany, more than we need an explanation. God didn't even give Job an explanation for what happened, but he gave him an encounter. And when we have that, When that wisdom from God himself comes in, everything shifts. So here's a question for you. What did not work for Job and John at their walls? What was inadequate to enable them to continue living a vibrant life of faith as they had before they suffered? And then take it personally. What is not working in the life of faith for you among things you've learned or been taught what are you finding is just not adequate for real life what new wisdom does god have for you how does he want to reintroduce himself in a way that you will be forever changed I want to go briefly through 10 topics that we have leaned on, maybe, that have become inadequate to hold up our faith. Let's begin with a crucial subject. Shallow spirituality. Shallow spirituality is something we need to unlearn. So I'm going to tell you something to unlearn and then a durable truth from God that will replace that. So we need to unlearn shallow spirituality. We're Christians because we're born in the Bible belt and we're really nice. We can still do what we want and be a Christian. Jesus is our band-aid and he's our fire insurance. His goal for our lives is to make us happy and prosperous. He doesn't really affect change or form our lives, but he is a blessing. Durable wisdom says to scrap Band-Aid Jesus. (laughs) He's not here to kiss your boo-boos, encourage you to be fake nice, and to make you rich. (laughs) He came as a lover to claim your heart. He doesn't want some flimsy social backup plan for being nice. He wants a commitment from you. and He's committed to you. In durable faith, we live for God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our body, our mind, our habits, our relationship, our schedule, our bank account, our work, it's all his. We're in the scripture because Jesus has the word of life. And somewhere inside us is the curiosity and the hope that he's more than we have ever imagined allow him you all to reintroduce himself that is wisdom that will support active faith. next one we need to unlearn that some emotions are not allowed especially the bad ones you know what i'm talking about like anger or shame even if we can quote the bible well we're still really emotionally immature that sometimes can express itself like ignore 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 explode You may be thinking of someone right now Um, maybe yourself you might expect others to conform to your selfish tendencies you may completely shut down when things get hard or you may be very easily offended those are things we need to unlearn durable wisdom says that we see God as the author and creator of emotion To be emotional is to be an image bearer of God himself. Here's an idea for you if you don't believe me. Go through the scriptures and circle the emotions of the Trinity. You'll find them all. To not allow emotions is to dehumanize an image bearer of God. We need to change. So all emotions have a toxic side and a beneficial side. Let me give you an example. In anger, all right? Anger in its toxic side is outwardly, it comes out as rage. Inwardly, it can go in and morph into depression. But what's the beneficial part? It energizes us to act. So it's not not that it's all one way or another. Every emotion has a toxic side and a beneficial side. In the name of God, we need to work toward emotional health. We need to work toward emotional maturity. Emotions are acknowledged and they're given appropriate weight. And when we're struggling, we cry out to God for help and then we get into our community for more help. That wisdom will support active faith. Our next one. We need to unlearn defining success. You all may know this on Gay Street. You know that place? Um, We need to unlearn defining success in material terms. It's an old idol that reinvents itself all the time. Followers, money, likes, things we've accumulated or owned are the measure of a person's importance. We find our identity in what we own or who we influence. While durable wisdom says, we define success as being close to God, growing in an intimate, mutual relationship. From Jacob, we learned that success is defined about how well we're wrestling with God. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? That success for you is not letting God go until he blesses you. For you, it might be getting out of bed, or getting a multi-million dollar offer on your business. It might be holding your tongue or holding your neighbor. It might be resolving that seemingly insurmountable issue or resolving to rest. That may be success. Being made in the image of God is the measure of a person's importance. Jesus warned us that there is a deceitfulness to wealth. So we find our identity in who God says we are not our possessions. That wisdom will support active faith. We need to unlearn ignoring our blind spots. Next one. That's a beautiful tiger from our zoo. If we differ with someone, we blow off things or people that offend us. We're easily offended. When certain topics come up, we kill our curiosity and quickly condemn a stranger with a different point of view. They can't be right. Well, God's durable wisdom says we pursue new understanding where we have blind spots. It's our responsibility to grow and learn. We pay attention. If something bothers us, we lean into it rather than run away from it. For example, if racism has been a blind spot, we research, explore scripture, ask questions, create opportunities to learn from someone who looks different from us. We recognize that Jesus says the kingdom will be rich with every tribe and nation and language. We bend our old thinking to God's truth. That is durable wisdom that will support an active faith. Next one. We need to unlearn our tendency to ignore what's wrong with us. Let me give you an example. When you go to the doctor, if something's wrong with you, you get a pathology report. And it tells you what's wrong. Well, we need to do the same with our souls. Let me give you a list of places where we need checkups in our souls. Because often we'll exclude God from these. Our ambition, our money, our relationships, our pace of living, our attitudes toward different cultures... Our manhood, our femininity, our church, our education, community involvement, sex, how to spend time, what is respectable behavior, conflict, parenting, what's fun, work ethic, physical affection, you name it. What we need to make sure that we're doing is what durable wisdom says to do. It says, uncover our soul's pathology, and the pathology we've inherited. God, this is how my family system thinks. God, this is how my culture thinks. God, this is how I think. What do you think? And then you listen. We let God into our motives, our habits, our defensiveness, our ambitions, our character, and we act on his response. We put the ungodly patterns and habits in the dumpster. Fill it up, you guys, even if it takes years. Open up your soul's pathology to the Lord who longs to heal you. Find solitude and find community to help you do it. That wisdom will support active faith. Our next one is happiness. We need to unlearn that God is our happy pill. God's primary objective for our lives is for us to be happy and snappy. Being happy is a measure of our Christianity. If things aren't going well, he must be mad at us, or maybe we have hidden sin in our lives, or maybe he's just mean. That drives our anxiety up, which is way too honest for social surface Christianity. So fake it happy cycle begins and that doesn't work either. So durable wisdom from God says death and destruction, not just creation and happiness, serve God's purposes. He's not just about making us happy all the time, although that is a part of our life of joy and shalom in him. Jesus was a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. That's in Isaiah 53.3. And as we heard in Genesis 32, sometimes God throws us down and wrestles us and stuns us. So God can be both the collision and the comforter. He's a gentle whisper, and he's that commanding trumpet voice that we read about in Revelation 1. He's familiar with sorrow, not just the bright and beautiful morning star. He is vast. And he shows his mystery in life and death and harm and help and love and loss. And that wisdom will support active faith. Just a few more. The next one is the church's alignment. We need to unlearn a politicized church, one that is aligned with government and politics and is used by politicians. Brand it, put your name on it and pick a side. Any Christian who's not on your side is both wrong and blind. Yet in God's durable wisdom, we remember that the church is not limited to a single nation at a single time. Church is aligned with Jesus and his kingdom, which transcends government and politics. Church is about forming the souls of people who then lovingly enter the culture to bring the kingdom to it. If they're called to politics, that's how they do it. The kingdom of God, not our political party, is primary. Our first pursuit is Jesus and keeping in step with the Spirit. We wisely assess the American church as we keep the global church and the church of all ages in mind. That wisdom will support active faith. The next one. We need to unlearn that the wealth is mine. Keep wealth for ourselves and our families because it's a sign of God's blessing. We give 10% and God is vaguely unconcerned with the rest. We got to unlearn that. And we need the durable wisdom that says that all we have is God's. All that wealth that we have in various forms, it's all his Let wealth flow through your responsible hands to do whatever he asks you to do with it for the kingdom. It's fun, you guys. Even if it's at your expense, you get to see the God of all bring the kingdom to the earth. And you have a part in it, letting it flow. We humbly keep in mind that the first shall be last and the last will be first. And Jesus calls out the deceitfulness of wealth in Mark 4:19. That wisdom will support active faith. We need to unlearn the avoidance of grief and loss. Staying numb, living in denial, keep moving, don't feel. The past is past. I gotta deny my depression and my anxiety, and I gotta put on that fake happy face again. Well, durable wisdom says to search grief and loss for treasures because they're there. Don't forget that Jesus identified as the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. That wisdom will support active faith. The last one is we need to unlearn that my life is mine. God's wisdom says there's a much broader, much more mysterious and curious and captivating reason for your life. Don't be so self-centered with it. Lift up your eyes. Look at a distinguished picture that's being drawn by a loving, singular, vivacious God. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and watch what he does. Do life as Jesus calls you to do life. Let go of the world's mechanics. Bring the fruit of the Holy Spirit to the neighborhood, to your job, to your home. The spotlight of your one beautiful life is on God. That wisdom will support active faith. Job saw it. His blessed, beautiful, and torn-up life was about God. During their times of suffering, John and Job unlearned a small vision of God and gained new wisdom, and their lives shifted. What do you need to unlearn? What epiphanies does God have for you, even as you wrestle or limp through your one precious and beloved life? For Moses, it was you are the God who calls and empowers. For Abraham, you are the God of the impossible. For Hagar, you are the God who sees. For Joseph, you are the God who reconciles and rescues. For Daniel, you are the God of visions. For Jeremiah, you are the God who gives me backbone. For the centurion, you are the God who commands. And it is done. For Martha, she said, you are the God of resurrection. Paul said, you are the God of the nations. The disciples said, you are the God who is worthy of our lives and our deaths. May Magdalene said, you are the God I love. May God give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And may you slow down, open up. And listen to him. Amen.